I'd ask you to join me again in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Last week we looked at the first three verses. This morning, the Lord helping us, we're going to look at verses 4 through verse 8. We have a saying that timing is everything. And so I want to, before proceeding any further, make sure we all understand the timing of this prayer, when Jesus prayed it, and how privileged we are that we can open our Bibles to this chapter and read it. Jesus is just hours away from the cross. If you skip over into the 18th chapter, you'll see that in the beginning of that chapter, Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Pilate accuses him. And then Christ is crucified. The prayer that we're reading and studying in these next few weeks, it's important to see that just before these things happened, God our Father gives us a glimpse into the heart of of Jesus Christ. What is he thinking just before he goes to the cross? Of whom is he thinking just before he goes to the cross? He had a great desire to honor his father, to glorify him. That's expressed in these first several verses. And then by the time we get down into the ninth verse, the rest of this prayer is prayed on behalf of those who were currently believing in him. And then those who would come to believe in him, including us as we sit here this morning. I want to remind you also of the first verse where John tells us Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and began to pray. So as we go through this, I want you to have that image in your mind. Your Savior and mine, just before he is given over to the work of the cross, lifting his eyes to heaven and praying to his Father. What do you see there? Can you see the love of Christ for you? Can you see the desire of Christ to honor his Father there? We see both of those things, but... I want us to see this too. I want you to notice the strength of your Savior. In this prayer, we read nothing of his shrinking back from what the Father had sent him to do. We don't see him flinch at all. Did he know everything that was to follow? He did. He knew everything that was to follow. He knew the scriptures about him that were prophesied under the Old Testament concerning himself of everything that he would suffer. He knew them even more intimately and greatly than we know them, having them written on the page for us. But yet he was completely unflinching. He was ready to accomplish your redemption and mine. So we find him here with his eyes Lifted toward heaven. And as we saw last week, he says, first of all, Father, the hour has come. 
Last week we considered this hour, the greatest hour of Christ. And there again, not referring to a 60-minute period, but to this particular hour or season of his life that included his cross work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, then his ascension back into heaven. This was the hour that glorified both the Father and the Son supremely. This was the hour that secured the salvation of those the Father had given him. And we're going to proceed along those lines as we read down to verse 8 this morning. I'm going to back up and read the first few verses, so if you'll give attention to those. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. Let's pray. Father, how privileged we are to read the words of your son, our Savior. Lord, we thank you that in great wisdom and mercy you have secured these words for us so that we might study them. We might be encouraged by them. We might see the heart of Christ bleeding for us as his people. What great concern he expresses before you. What desire he has for you to be gloried and honored. What desire he has for himself being the very son of God to receive glory from you. So Father, help us this morning to give our heart's attention, our mind's attention to these words. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. We're going to begin here in verse 4, and I want to point your attention to two verbs that are given to us in the past tense. These verbs refer to a work that was yet Specifically stated, undone. But yet Jesus speaks as if they have already been done or accomplished. You see verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Do you see all kinds of things Concerning Christ and his cross work here. So sure was the work 
to be done, that Jesus speaks of it as it has already been accomplished. He had no intention of turning away from it. None. So as he's praying, he says here to his father, I have glorified you on the earth. Go back to the beginning of the Gospels when Christ was sent or dispatched from heaven. And he came wrapped in flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. The angels are singing glory to God in the highest. The angel appears to both Mary and Joseph prior to his birth. And we looked at it last week. The angel declared to Joseph in a dream, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the work that he is accomplishing, and he says is already indeed finished. It won't be until hours later that Jesus, from the cross, his body hanging there, says these words again. This time it is finished. But even here, he's looking forward to the accomplishing of them. He says, first, I have glorified you. That word means that he has rendered the Father glorious in all things. Or you can think of it this way. He has filled up the honor of his Father. All that the Father had given him to do, he had perfectly accomplished. The word he uses here, finished, means to bring to complete perfection or consummation. There was nothing that Jesus Christ left undone in redeeming me and you And all of our brothers and sisters through the years from sin. We could say this. Every I was dotted and every T was crossed. Everything was accomplished according to the scriptures. Notice he calls this work. I have finished the work. Toilsome labor. Christ had finished. And it was this toilsome labor that the Father had given him to do. Do you realize as we go through this, that everything that we're going to read and study, in fact, when you read the Gospels, considering the crucifixion, all of these details, this is the work the Father had given Christ to do. And he willingly took it upon himself. He was obedient To every detail of the law of God, he had finished the work. He remained perfectly sinless in it all. He had finished the work. He had fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He had finished the work. And he was in every way the spotless lamb that God had provided. And now he was going to the cross. The work is finished. But notice his desire. Verse 2 expressed this. We saw it last week. There is a desire here of Christ to be glorified. Verse 2 says, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. We said then, and I'll repeat it now. Jesus Christ, the God-man, perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, he was. This is no selfish request. This is a desire that he would be poured out 
so that the Father might receive the utmost glory. Glorify your Son. Why? So that your Son may also glorify you. That's repeated here in in verse 5. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so I want to break away from this prayer for just a moment, and I want to consider with you from other parts of the Scriptures What is Jesus' great desire here? Well, we could answer it this way. This is his desire to resume the glory, his former glory, that he had shared in unbroken communion with the Father from eternity past. I think when we consider it in this way and we see what the Scripture says about this, it makes the cross work of Christ all the more glorious. Because we know there is a point in time when hanging upon the cross, Jesus asks this great question. He shouts out this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was something totally different and unlike what he had experienced to this point. The scripture tells us at the beginning of John's gospel, if you want to just flip back to chapter 1. We get a little glimpse into eternity past and the communion of father and son when John tells us in the beginning was the word. The word being Christ. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light of, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we're given this look into heaven, and what we see there is throughout eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are in complete communion and in harmony one with another. Distinct persons, yes, but still one God. The word with there that John uses literally can be translated face to face. The son was face to face with the father. Sharing in his glory. John tells us that as being face to face with the father, that all things were created through him. So he is there in glory, but he's also there in great power. He is there in great wisdom. We go and read chapters like Proverbs 8, and we find that there... The wisdom of God was creating through Christ, speaking words and this unbroken communion that the son had with the father should be forefront on our mind as we consider what he is accomplishing here in these latter chapters of the gospel of John. But there is another place in the scriptures, perhaps the greatest image that we find of this selflessness of Christ. You know the passage well. It's in Philippians chapter 2. But let me remind you of the context there. In Philippians 2, Paul is exhorting the believers to be humble. He is exhorting them to consider the rest of the body more important and their needs to be more important than their own. He is exhorting the believers there to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, 
Do nothing in pride and arrogance. Do nothing to serve yourself. Do everything to serve your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. And when that happens, we could say, in the local church, there is heaven on earth. If we would only conduct ourselves with what Paul calls there the mind of Christ, the local church would be glorious. And it should be. And this is the context in which we find this this glimpse into not only the communion that Jesus as the the Son of God had with his Father, but his willingly setting that aside for a moment. Remember John chapter 1. He's there in the same glory. He's there in the same power. He is receiving the praise. Doesn't this make what we read in Philippians chapter 2 all the more wondrous for us? Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, ask the question, what was the mind? He says, who being in the form of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. In the very form of God. But then we read this phrase, and this is what is called the humiliation of Christ, the great humbling of Christ. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? The ESV translates it this way. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when you read the word grasped, think clutched, held on to. I like the marginal note in an older Bible that I have. That says, he thought it no plunder. You know what plunder is? We read of that in the Old Testament, right? David or some king would lead the troops. They would defeat a people. And they would collect the plunder. And that is used sometimes in the verb form. To go out and plunder someone meant that you were going to go out and destroy them annihilate them and cart off their goods. Jesus thought it no plunder to be equal with God. He set that all aside willingly. Of course, we're referring to Christ and his human nature. He never ceased to be fully God. But in his human nature, we see that there were things by his own admission he didn't know. He didn't know the hour of his return. He submitted that unto his father. So when we go back to John 17, when Christ is praying for the resumption of this glory. He's praying that the father, as we saw last week, would carry him through this hour to the point That he is resumed into glory, ascended into heaven, coronation as king, seated at the Father's right hand. But as we look at this, I want you to think also of this verse, Hebrews 12, chapter 2. You know that verse? We're familiar with the first part of it where we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But how does that verse end? 
It says, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and then is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we read that, the writer of Hebrews calls it joy for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. What joy is he speaking of? Certainly it must at least encompass the resumption of that former glory where Christ is ruling and reigning from heaven, seated with the Father in great power and strength, receiving the due of his own praise and worship. This is the resumption of glory. This is what Christ is praying for in the fifth verse of John 17. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And yet the humility of our Savior, having for a time set it aside, because he must set it aside. To accomplish our salvation. This is the glory that Christ is desiring. Brethren this is why we have met here this morning. To give him the glory he is due. For enduring the cross. And despising its shame. Because even now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's receiving the honor. He's receiving the glory. We often take heart knowing that the Lord hears our prayers and he answers. But see this. God, his father, heard the prayer of his son and it pleased him to answer this request of his son. He says, oh, father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was the father's response? He did it. He raised him from the dead, declaring him to be his son with power. That's the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. Complete and utter vindication. Restored to that position where he was formerly, this time now as both the God-man from this time forth and forevermore. The Father has glorified the Son. Because the Son glorified the Father on earth and finished the work which the Father had given him to do. But Jesus goes on in this prayer before he gets to praying specifically for his disciples and future believers in verses 9 and following. Verse 6 says, not only has he glorified the Father on earth, not only has he finished the work the Father had given him to do, but verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. We don't use the word manifested in this way anymore. We just simply say, I've shown you something or revealed something to you. That's what the word means. It means to reveal something that had been concealed. Jesus says, I have manifested, I have made known your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. So we're going to look at two parts of this verse. First, 
What has Jesus made known about the Father? And then secondly, to whom has he made this known? Jesus says, I have manifested your name. That means so much more than just having declared him to be father. When the name is spoken of God in the Old Testament, carrying over into the new, it includes all of his attributes, his character. So Jesus here is saying, I have manifested you to a certain group of men. I have shown them who you are. I have shown you to be good. I have shown you to be merciful, loving, kind, gracious. Yes, even just. I have shown you to be all of these things. And just as he had completely glorified his father and finished the work, he completely manifested the name of the father to his people. Nothing left undone. J.C. Ryle says, a right knowledge of God the Father was the first thing which Christ revealed and taught his disciples. Everything begins there. In your Christianity, with your faith, everything begins with who God is. Everything begins with him as being creator, sustainer, provider. All of these things flowing to us through a peculiar and specific channel, and that being the son of his love. You realize you wouldn't know anything other than what you could observe in nature about God if you didn't know Christ. You would be left like the person in the most remote part of the world who has not heard the specific gospel of Jesus Christ. You would look at creation and say, yes, there's a powerful being who is wise. He has created all of these things. But we would know nothing of the specific nature of his love and mercy and grace given toward us if Christ had not made them known. He willingly set aside the equality with the Father to make the Father known to us. He set aside in great humiliation all that he was, all that he gloried in in former times to come into his own creation to make the Father known to a sinful humanity. We didn't finish reading there in Philippians chapter 2, but perhaps it would be a good time to do that because we're told there not only did he set aside this great glory, but he set it aside for a particular reason. Even though you're familiar with the verses, please hear them again. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And remember the context of this prayer just prior to his death of the cross. And remember, he's also here praying that the Father would glorify him. And if you read the very next verse in Philippians chapter 2, the ninth verse says, Therefore God also highly exalted him by giving him a name and making him the subject of, the, of worship of all of his creation. But now we have to see to whom Jesus manifested his father. To whom did he manifest the name of his father? Put your eyes on the page. Read it with me. 
So you don't suppose that these are my words. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. To whom did Jesus manifest the name of the Father? The scripture says to the men that the Father had given him. Listen to these words by J.C. Ryle. This is a sort of a long sentence. So stay with me as I read it. J.C. Ryle says, Believers have been given to Christ by the Father. According to an everlasting covenant made and sealed long before they were born. And taken out from the world by the calling of the Spirit in due time. They are the Father's peculiar property. Now they are the property of the Son as well. They were of the world and no wise better than any other. Their calling and election out of the world to be Christ people and not any foreseen merit of their own is the real foundation of their character. End quote. I love what he said. Believers were the Father's peculiar property. We think of the word peculiar as being strange, right? That's a peculiar fellow. What do we mean by that? We mean he's odd, right? He's weird or whatever. But that's not the way the word peculiar is to be understood in the scriptures. Peter says we are a peculiar people. He doesn't mean we're strange and odd. He means we belong especially to someone. And so when J.C. Ryle says that we are the Father's peculiar property, he says we were especially belonging to the Father. The Father gave us to his Son. The Father gave his Son a bride. The Son is now perfecting that bride. Her garments are being cleansed and washed by the water of the word. And he will in time return from heaven. And there will be this great marriage of the bridegroom and the bride. But all of this begins with the father giving this gift to his son. And we can make no apology, nor should we, for the scripture when the scriptures declare things like this in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is cause for us to glory and bless God, not recoil from him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Why? How does Paul answer it in Ephesians 1? According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, the peculiar people of God given to his son. And Jesus says, I have manifested your name to them. They were yours. You gave them to me. 
But we also need to bring balance, scriptural, biblical balance into this thought. Just as we are unapologetic for what the scripture declares about this peculiar people, people known by the father that is given to the son. So we must at the same time deal with the scriptures, all of them that entreat unbelievers to come to Christ and be saved. The free offer of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Who will be saved? You will be saved. Will you believe on Jesus Christ and be saved? So here again, as we do very often in the scriptures, we've run headlong into this relationship, this friendship of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Don't deny either. Embrace them both. Glory in them both. If you were not the peculiar possession of the Father, you would have not been given to the Son. But if you had not humbled yourself in repentance and come to Christ, you would not be His either. What did Spurgeon say about this? These words that are repeated so often, but yet so helpful. He's asked, how do you reconcile these two great truths of God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man? And he says, they need not be reconciled. They're friends. Friends do not need reconciliation. Admittedly, as Jesus is praying, not just here, but throughout this prayer, there are things that we just must bow in humble submission to. Things that we can't fully fathom, nor can we plummet the depths of which Jesus here is praying. But everything that the Father shines light on, everything that he makes known, everything that he has revealed, we bow to him because he's God and we are not. So again, back in verse 6. Jesus says, I have made known your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now, verses seven and eight, there are some peculiar characteristics of these people. There are some specific things that this group of people that the Father has given to the Son. There are some specific things that Jesus says about them. Verse 7 is the first of these. Excuse me, the last part of verse 6. They have kept your word. Verse 7. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Verse 8, for I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here are the peculiar characteristics of this people. Keeping the word of God. Obeying it. Realizing that what Christ said is the very word of God because he is the word of God himself. 
But it's not just keeping the word. It's a recognition and an acknowledgement and a knowing that all things which you have given me are from you. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. The Father of lights. In whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. That's true not just with our relationship with the Father, but of the Father and the Son. This peculiar people know that all things which you have given me are from you. They realize that every good thing has come to them at the hand of a good Father. Why else would the Spirit within us teach us to cry and make us yearn to cry out, Abba, Father? But the description goes on. Not just that this people are those who keep the word and know that every good thing comes to them by the hand of the Father. Verse 8 says, I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. Very akin to having kept the word, but a reception of the word really is to welcome. To be hospitable to the word. To receive them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you. In other words, what Jesus is saying, there is an agreement from this people with what Jesus said in verses like John 3.16, that conversation with Nicodemus that we've studied. For God so loved the world that he gave. There is an agreement with this peculiar people that this son, this redeeming son of God, did indeed come forth from the Father. The eternal counsels of God dictate or show us that at some point in time, only known to the Father, the details certainly only known to the Godhead, the Son agreed in love, in mercy, to be dispatched to save this rebellious, fallen into sin mass of humanity and to bring all of those out that the Father would give him. But yet the work must be done. Why? Because God is just. Sometimes the question is asked if God is all-powerful, if he's all-wise, if he's all-love, why did Christ have to suffer? Well, all of those things are true. He is all wise, good, and just, and, and holy, but he's just. He does not overlook sin. All things considered, doesn't it make what Christ has done and what he's praying for here all the more precious to us to realize that he, through eternity past, enjoyed perfect equality, communion with God, but he set it aside did not consider it robbery, did not consider it beneath him. How many things do we consider to be beneath us? 
Aren't you thankful Christ did not consider it beneath him to leave it all, to enter his own creation, and to suffer? He is the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah. And here we are so privileged to read what he says, how he prays. But we have one more part to finish. The end of verse 8. And they have believed that you sent me. And I think Jesus is here meaning more so. It's not just a repetition of what he says. They have known surely that I came forth from you. To believe that the Father sent the Son must imply that there was a necessity that the Son be sent. That necessity was our lost and fallen state, being dead in sin and transgression and totally unable to do anything about it. But yet this peculiar group of people given to the Son by the Father believed that he was sent by the Father for a reason. Their redemption. Do you believe these things? If you do, you are believing them unto the salvation of your soul. If he has begun this good work in you, he will complete it unto the day of salvation. But let me say as clearly and as plainly as I can, and I say this in love, if you don't believe these things about Christ, about your own sinfulness before him, if you don't believe these things, you have no part in him. And even worse, if it could get worse, he has no part in you. And so some people, on thinking about these things, get all caught up into thinking, am I this peculiar pe- people given to the Son by the Father? And it's good to think on those kinds of things and to study those kinds of things. The scriptures bear them out. But let me just put your minds at ease. If you'll come to Christ today, if you'll come to him in faith believing, you are part of that peculiar people that the Father gave to the Son. Ron read for us this morning Matthew chapter 8. And as he was reading, I was thinking of the conclusion of this sermon. The leper came to Jesus. What did he say? Lord, if you are willing, what did Jesus say? I am willing. Be clean. The centurion came to Jesus about his servant and said, Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing. And what did Jesus say? I am willing. I will. If there is anything in you this morning that causes you to come 
to Christ and say, Lord, if you are willing, please hear. And may the Spirit of God drive it down into your heart and mind. He will. He will. The adversary, the accuser, will flood your mind with things that might prevent you believing this. Things like, what about all of those years I lived in sin? What about all of the things that I've done? What about all the disobedience in my life? What about how I have dishonored my parents? What about how I have failed my children? What about how I have failed my husband or my my spouse, my co-workers? What about the harm, the physical harm that I've done to people? What about all of these types of things? Lord, are you willing? A leper, representative, everywhere in the Bible you read about a leper in the Old Testament, it is a visible expression of sin. Leprosy is incurable. Always ends in death. Sin is incurable, save for the cross work of Jesus Christ. And it always kills. The leper who's full of leprosy came to the one person that could do anything about his condition. And he said, will you? Jesus said, I will. If you will come to Christ like that, recognizing that he is the only one that can do anything about the desperate condition that you are in, cast yourself upon him, not caring for the voice of the accuser or the adversary, and just come to Christ and say, will you, Lord? He will say to you, I will. Be thou clean. And immediately... Your leprosy will have left you. And you will have become white as snow. That's the power of our Savior. That's the love of our Savior. You see it pouring out from him all throughout this prayer as his eyes are lifted to heaven. And he is praying, revealing his soul. So would you come to him? Cast yourself upon him. He will by no means cast you out. Come believing. Come receiving. And then you can say in great humility. Don't be proud. In great humility. I am part of the number that the father has given the son. I am a part of the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that we've been able to study and what you've shown us about the heart of our Savior as he approached the cross. The willingness, the surety with which he went to that work, speaking of it as already having been done. We thank you for in grace and mercy making these things known to us. And Father, we pray for the salvation of any who are outside of Christ, young, old, boy, girl, man, woman. 
Father, we pray you would do the work. Bring them to yourself. We ask it only so that Christ would be honored and glorified. And we ask it in his name. Amen.